we're live! It's the Life of Jam live video podcast, season two, episode 18. And I'm here with special guest, writer, author, Linda Smith-Hogan. She wrote, look at this beautiful memoir, a book called Our Song, a memoir of love and race. We're going to talk to her about it. First, um, I have a new thing where I'm going to shout out the Inland Empire. And tonight, I have to shout out someone close to my heart, my twin sister, Dr. Jacqueline Mance, who teaches at Edward Wurzlaff Alternative Education Center in Desert Hot Springs. Her class just published a journal called Third Eye Writing, and they were featured on NBC and Univision tonight. So great job, Dr. Jacqueline Mance. Great job to her school. Had to shout them out. So let's talk about this. I have Linda Smith-Hogan here. I'm going to introduce her, and then we're going to bring her in, and she's going to do a reading for us. And then at the very end of the show, she's going to do another reading to close us out. And before we end tonight, we're going to do our New Year's resolutions and a toast. Because um, you'll find out, but Linda and I go way back. We've shared many a glass of beer or wine together or vodka along with readings. So this is my last episode of 2022. Okay, here's Linda's bio. Linda Smith-Hogan has been a professor of health and human sexuality at Mount San Antonio College, that's Mount Sac for us in the know in the IE, which is in Walnut for over 25 years. But with her retirement, she fulfilled her desire to return to her early passion for creative writing. This is her first book that she just published called Our Song, a memoir of love and race. It's available through She Writes Press. She has been published widely in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, West Wind, UCLA Journal of the Arts, The Cultural Daily, and more. And she blogs on her website at lindasmithhogan.com. There's a link in there. And I know Linda because we wrote our memoirs together. We literally would meet every day, every once a month for five years and drink wine drink beer, drink vodka, and write and talk. And we are also in that group that we called ourselves the Trace Libras because we're all Libras with our friend, Dr. Francis Barella. So welcome, Linda. I am, oh, I am so honored to have you. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for <laughs> making time for me. Yeah, and this episode, everyone must know, it's called Writing a Love Story. And everyone knows I'm a sucker for a love story. I wore my heart. So not only are we great friends, but like I said, we're in a writing group together. So let's start with a short reading by Linda at the very beginning. So you all can see what a beautiful, I mean, this is a love story of epic proportions. It takes place in the 70s and till this day. So Linda, take it away. All right, thanks. So just to set the stage, this scene opens with me being introduced to um, a friend of a friend at the college in my hometown where one of my friends went. Uh, she was friendly with the star basketball player there um, who was an African-American man from a larger city. And even though I had another boyfriend going to school in England, she just felt that this other man and I would hit it off and should be together. And so she took me to meet him along with another friend. And it's my two friends, Hannah and Colleen and me. And we have gone to hang out with JT at his college dorm. At around seven o'clock, we knocked and JT's eyes widened when he opened the door. I realized that if athletics were his priority, he might actually send us away. But no, he invited us in. Was he flattered that three young women had so obviously schemed to waylay him for the night? Or was he just used to this kind of attention? If he was, he didn't show it. He seemed humble, a happy smile playing about his mouth. He put on a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young album. Hannah and I poured the wine into plastic cups, and Colleen pulled out a joint. Amidst the talking, laughing, and self-conscious jockeying for our social positions, I saw JT's eyes keep dancing back to me. Soon it became clear. JT was mine, at least as far as that night was concerned. Nervous, I used my fallback strategy. 
project an air of quiet mystery, a good hiding place for my shyness. I could still flirt with my eyes and smile. We played a trivia game. Whereas I was drawing questions with answers like Mesopotamia, answers I didn't usually know, JT kept getting the vocabulary questions that I would have done well on. But JT was also good with language. What's a four-syllable word beginning with T? Tantalizing, said JT, smiling at me. I leaned forward just enough to tantalize with a bit of cleavage. A little while later, he drew the card again. What's a four-syllable word beginning with T? It seemed even funnier stoned, and we girls all just fell out laughing. JT didn't miss a beat. Titillating, he said, his eyes locked on mine. I titillated back with my mysterious smile. Hannah sent me an approving look and private wink. Colleen watched him, her eyes bright with admiration. But seeing his attention like a beacon on me, she stood back. I'd just about given up any hope of shining in this game when suddenly a gift appeared in the form of sexual perversion. Name a famous doctor starting with K. Confident, I gave my answer, Kraft Ebbing. The others just stared. I explained that he was a psychiatrist who'd written the first reference book about sexual psychopaths, but they had never heard of him. You made that up, said Colleen, poking my shoulder. Hannah and JT agreed, and they all denied me the points. I grumbled but conceded, hoping that JT might at least suspect I had a vast array of intriguing sexual knowledge, which I most certainly did not. At one point when we sat quietly after the game, JT put on a Blood, Sweat, and Tears album. I was taken aback when 40,000 headmen began to play. As the instrumental bridge swelled to a beautiful crescendo, JT's eyes again met mine. He couldn't know that the song had previously made me think of meeting him, but I saw that he was just as moved as I was by the ways that music could touch us. It was getting late. As we girls were leaving, JT gently pulled me back inside. You don't go back to school till Monday, right? He asked. Yeah, right. He casually took my hand and looked down at his fingers playing with mine. I have practice during the day tomorrow. Do you want to come up later and hang out? My heart clashed like the school marching band, but outwardly I played it cool. Yeah, sure, why not? I'll see you then. I caught up with the girls who managed to hold it in until we were out of earshot. What did he say? What does he want? They both spoke at once and I laughed. Oh, just to see me tomorrow, I said innocently, pretending it wasn't the most important event of the night the most thrilling thing that had happened to me in ages. But I couldn't pretend for long. He probably heard our screams echoing down the hall. Wow. I love that you read that part. It sets <laughs> it up perfectly. All these different characters that are going to interact throughout the book, the time frame, the music, the, the age, you know, college kids, the drinking, the drugs. Wow. So let's start with this beautiful book. And for those who just tuned in, I know we just got a couple more people. This book is called Our Song, A Memoir of Love and Race. Linda Smith Hogan just read a portion of it. She's going to also read it at the end. Let's start with how this beautiful book and this beautiful love story started, okay? Um, I don't want to give away the end, though, so we're not going to talk about that. But I was in your writing club, and you wrote this, and I read early versions of it. And this started with you unlocking and unpacking memory, both literally and figuratively. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, basically, I knew years before that one day I would probably write this story, but I had no plans to do so. And what spurred it was that um, I lived in the foothills of Los Angeles, eastern area Los Angeles, and there was a wildfire that was headed toward my house. And there had previously been one that burned right into my front yard. So it was really scary to think that, you know, I've got, I may have to evacuate. And what am I going to take? Because they give you 15 minutes, sometimes less. Yeah. Um, so I had, you know, saved a lot of things on disc and so on um, that I could easily uh, put in my car. But I knew that in my garage, I had a bin full of memories that I had never, you know, put on computer or anything, and um, they were sitting unprotected. 
So I went out to the garage at 1.30 in the morning and located the bin and dragged it in on my bed. And there I found the 22 letters written from him to me in 1972. And even though the fire was coming, I had to pull out the very first one. And it just, I, I just swooned as if I were 20 years old again, because he was just such a wonderful writer, um, so personal and so quirky that it just really took me back. And I decided that night, I am going to digitize these letters so that I never lose them. And I'm going to start my book. And I did. And you finished it. And we'll talk and about I finished that. It. it took years and years, but I finished it. And for all of you out there who think you can't do this or think you're too old, think you're that you don't have any time. I mean, we're not going to say how exactly old you are, but you're, <laughs> you're, you're not like, you're not young. I'm a kid. I mean, you know, she did this, you know, and you had a full career, you know, yeah. at Mount Sac as a professor of sexuality and human sexuality. And, and you still did this while working. And so for all those people that say you can't do it, Linda Smith Hogan should be your inspiration. She's not only a wonderful writer, but she's part of our community in the Inland Empire. She used to live in Upland. She now lives up north. So kudos to you. And I'm going to read out just some comments really quick. Victoria Waddle, who's a uh, librarian, said, uh, excellent preview. Ruth Marlinet, who wrote the book Agave Blues, which just won a screenplay award, says on my list. Francis Barella, who is one of the Trace Libras. There's only three. And no one else is ever coming in. So um, we're the pink ladies, uh, the Trace Libras. And, uh, and Francis is here. So I just wanted to shout out the people who are here. And then Ruthie said, brava, for sure. Brava. Thank you. So this whole book is about a romance that started more than four decades ago between you and JT. Um, How hard or easy was it for you to find and unlock these memories? Because I know you had the letters, but you also had to fill in the prose. Or were these memories just imprinted in your mind? Because I know what that's like. Uh, you know, I had a really easy time writing my young adult 10 to 14 year, but I had a harder time writing high school. So how hard was that whole process? Did you free write? I mean, let's tell people how you did this. I just started free writing mm-hmm. and I start started with what I considered the beginning, which was the meeting of him, you know, and how, how we got going. And, um, and it, it just came so easily because A, I did have the letters, and so they confirmed things that I remembered, but I also have a pretty good memory for the past. And one of the reasons for that, I believe, is that I relive the past a lot in my thinking and evaluating my life and where I've been and where I'm going. And that forges those synaptic connections in our brains so that we can call those things up again later. And, you know, that's why... Lots of old people may not be able to remember what they had for dinner last night, but they can remember something that happened 50 years ago and even quote conversations. So for me, it, uh, you know, I just allowed myself to write whatever part of it I wanted. I didn't necessarily go uh, chronologically. If I felt like writing a chapter that I thought would come later, then I would just go with that because that's how I kept from getting any kind of a writer's block. I could just keep going. I could do another part. And it was it was fun and it was heartbreaking um, to relive all of that. And I'm glad I did. I'm glad you did, too, because look at this beautiful product you put out. And, you know, um, you were just we were talking about you writing these memories. But I have to say this. I love me a romance and I love me a hot romance. And you <laughs> and the man you call JT are hot, hot, hot. Some of these love scenes. And it's not just the actual sex, um, which you do talk a little bit about, but it's the lead up to that that's sexy, I think, for women especially. So is uh, not everyone can do this well. In fact, most people cannot. Um, so how hard is it to write a love scene for you? Is it something you enjoy? What gets you in the mood? Well, you know, you I eat te- a lot of oysters. Like I, I, No, I, I teach you <laughs> in sexuality. So... Sexual themes are very much in the forefront of my life and my thoughts and my, um, some might even say my spirituality, even though I don't you know, personally care for that word. 
Um, so for me, it was really just a matter of just put myself there as if it were happening and think about the senses, the, the smell, the sound, the touch, feel, you know, just put myself in it and just let it come. And then I can fix it later. You know, it's, it's probably going to be a little broken and maybe a little hokey or whatever, but get it out and then I can fix it later. And I did a lot of fixing, um, but that was just part of the process. And uh, I enjoy writing about sex. Not that I've done a whole lot of it, but um, Mount Sac has a an annual writing, um, what, like a conference kind of with, you know, educational workshops and stuff. And I have taught one there called Writing About Sex. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, when I taught that workshop, I had to think through, well, what are the factors that go into writing about sex? And, you know, a good deal of it is what you say, setting the stage, setting the scene. Otherwise, it's just body parts going into body parts. And that's boring. Yeah. yeah. And I loved how you used um, music also to heighten the mood. You know, um, music can be very sexy. A lot of the music you quote, we may not have the same uh, taste in music, but we definitely have the same passion for music. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I think the other issue with writing about sex is a lot of us have these hang ups or shame, right? It's Catholic. It's like, oh, don't talk about that. We're not supposed to be sexual beings. So I think there is something very freeing, both about, I mean, I'm a huge, um, I even like the Anne Ranclair, Anne Rice's Sleeping Beauty books that are very uh, risque. And uh, I, I, got the, I think they're hot. You know, it's like taking a fairy tale and making it sexy. Um, so, I mean, I think that's really empowering for women to know that they can write about sex and not be embarrassed about it. Absolutely. But it's also important to keep in mind who your characters are. Yeah. You know, and so these kids are 20 years old and they think that they're wor worldly wise and they know it all, but they know so little and right. they're shy. And so the scenes between me and JT lean more toward being sweet, I think. Um, but that Absolutely. doesn't mean that, you know, they've been called hot by you and others. So uh, I'll take it. Yeah, I think the hotness, it comes through like this passion with the music thumping in the background, the bodies grinding together, and then the love that is clearly there. Um, what's in I your heart? You know, mm -hmm. what's in your heart makes such a difference. It's why I used to love Harlequin romance novels as a kid, because the, the romance was always, um, you know, with these very flowery language about him grabbing her and holding her. But there was all, always romance and love. It was never just about a one night stand or something like that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I just have to say Cindy Nessinger is here. She says, hot sex. I'm buying your book. <laughs> and she said, I love to participate in your sex writing workshops. Come on, people. Check her out. Please. And then. Francis is here. Linda is just naturally sexy. So Aww. easy for her to write this. This is true because not everyone is. And I will say this. You are sexy. Aww, sexy, sexy, you. sexy with your long legs and your short skirts. <laughs> Gorgeous. Um, uh, and then we have Ruthie Marlene. As a kid, Juanita, my sis was shocked. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. I mean, I started reading Harlequins when I was five, so it's kind of crazy. Um, I had a very warped view of romance. Oh, and so Ruthie also wants to take a class with you. So everyone, that's at which is it? The Mount Sac. Um, I it's called Culturama. Yep. Look it up online, Culturama. So it won't be until probably next November. Yep. We just had one recently, and they're virtual, aren't they? Uh, this last one was uh, part virtual and part in person. Great, great. And in the, you know, in the previous past, they were in person. Then we went to Zoom during the pandemic. Yeah, so that's good that they're hybrid. I think that's important. Let's talk about this issue. You know, when you were writing this book, um, the book initially had a number of full letters within the pages. And due to some issues with JT, um, the person otherwise known as JT, um, he didn't let you use his letters that you found out were copyrighted. So you had to summarize them and use excerpts, which I really love how you did this. It's very seamless. But how hard was that? Whoa. Because number one, this is not a pure epistolary novel anymore. And I like that about it. It's mostly narrative with these excerpts put in, but you still really do hear the voice of JT. And you have to remember, I've seen both versions and I really loved how it turned out. <laughs> 
I'm so glad because it took a ton of work and it was a bit heart wrenching for me um, because, you know, if you think about the time that we were doing this, 1972, there was no email, there was no internet, there were no cell phones. We couldn't even afford long distance phone calls because they were expensive and we were college students. So we connected and built our relationship through these long, long letters. And, um, he and there's even a scene where you can't meet up with JT because of your car breaking down. It's not like he, you can tell him. No. Like, this is just how it used to work. He's sitting at his up. dorm waiting yeah. for me to show up. And I, I didn't show up. So um, so those letters just meant the world to me. Yeah. And, you know, I probably loved them way more than anybody else would. But I just assumed, hey, everybody's going to love these letters. Well, I found out that I couldn't use them without his permission. And he very strongly did not want to give his permission. He felt they were private. Um, so what I chose to do was to basically um, just take excerpts and then paraphrase them into other words. And I still feel to this day that my words are not as sweet and sexy uh, and intimate as his words. But I did my best. And it's what I had to do to protect the book and keep it going forward. A hundred percent. And really, um, I do want to tell people that being a writer is all about adapting. When I couldn't get the rights to a lot of the song lyrics, because I didn't have the money to, I didn't have the time because mm -hmm. I wanted my book out. I didn't have the money. I was with a small press and um, to get the rights to these song lyrics. So I did the same thing with the song lyrics. I quoted the title and I uh, paraphrased the lyrics. Now, I, I think the book would have been better with the song lyrics, in my opinion, because I think song lyrics are a little different than letters. But um, I'm OK with it. It still reads the way I want it to read. Anyone that knows the Smiths knows what the lyrics say or Bowie. So, I mean, anyone can go look it up, too. So I think what's great about what you did, though, is the way they also and I know this is a, a editor press thing is the way they set them out in italics. Um, you know, it still looks like a letter. Um, mm -hmm. People can see that they do set it off. So I think um, you do get a sense of what these letters would have felt like and, and sounded like. And, you know, for me, um, one of my favorite movies of all time is a movie called You've Got Mail with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan about email. But it's yeah. based on a 1950s movie called The Shop Around the Corner, where they wrote letters and fell in love. <laughs> Well, and I had to do the same thing with song lyrics, too, because a, a big part of our letters was the use of song lyrics. He loved writing out whole songs to me. Um, and then I would play the songs and listen and read the words. And, you know, that was just the way that we connected. But I couldn't use those song lyrics without a massive amount of work and, and probably refusals and probably money. You need and a big so press to do it because they have their people that do it. Yeah. And so yeah. what I chose to do was, you know, mostly stick with titles and paraphrasing and mm -hmm. uh, things like that. And I, I think it still worked, even though I would have liked to use the originals. You know, I, I think your book, I still I still felt the lyrics, even though you didn't quote mm -hmm. the lyrics. I knew what songs you're talking about. You're talking about Santana, Jill Scott, uh, her own. I think your taste in music is impeccable. You really are almost an encyclopedia in some ways of that 70s funky R&B stuff. So it's beautiful. Um, and I even left some out. I mean, there were, there were songs that we wrote to each other that I even left out because my book was just getting too long. But I do have a playlist at the end of the book of every song that's referenced in the book. And um, you know, Linda. Someone can go and look at if they're interested. There is something called Spotify that you uh -huh. can do a playlist and put <laughs> yeah. it on your website. That would be fun. I can help you if you want. I think okay, that would be cool. a really cool thing because I did one for my first book, the public defender book, where I did a playlist and I really love that playlist. Oh, and, that's uh, really neat. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, and not every book, it, not every song is in the book, mm -hmm. but I, I went through the whole book and I was reading it. I would write down a song, write down a song, write down a song. And then I put yeah. together this like 40 song playlist. And I, I just uh, imagine what it would be like if someone had that on Spotify playing in the background while they're reading your book. I know, huh? That would be really cool. So yeah. we can work on that next year. I know. That would be fun. So um, 
memory is hard. We all know this, especially when we're talking about trauma and love and breaking up. I mean, when you and uh, JT have some struggles, because you're kind of in a a three-way triangle, we'll talk about that in a bit, but how difficult um, was it to write truthfully and not idealize either JT or yourself? I think you are a very non-idealized narrator. I mean, you're very clear about your faults, about the things you do with school and with drinking and drugs and your family and their racism. And we're going to talk about that because you're white, JT is black, um, and your fiance Will is also black. So how hard is it to not, because I I struggled with this myself. My book went through so many reiterations to try Mm -hmm. to find the truth of my father and mother and my sisters and not idealize my father who was gone and not villainize my mother who I really got to know through the book and began to love even more than I had already loved her and admired her. So, I mean, how hard was that? I think that's something all memoirists, only memoirists in this kind of question have to deal with. You know, I, over the years, I've had to face up to my own faults as far as why that relationship didn't last. Yeah. And it was a very painful realization because it was much easier for me to blame JT and to blame the other person that he got involved with, my friend Colleen. Um, But eventually I I did have to face up to the fact that the initial mess up, if you will, started with me. And boy, was that hard. And then I still have a tendency to idealize him to this day because Mm -hmm. I think he had some of the least fault out of all of us. Um, Yeah, he stuck by you see clearly, you know, well, what did he do wrong? You know, what should he regret? Um, with my friend, it was a little bit easier to see, you know, what she had done that what, that was wrong. So glad you finally cut that bitch out. Sorry. but <laughs> I have no other words. I have told you this many times. I know, I know. I, your first draft, you, you were way too nice about her. Here's the thing, though. Um, we had decades of yeah. very good supportive friendship. Yeah. Um, and other, because that's not the subject of the book, I think the reader doesn't see that so much. Yeah. So, and that, and that's my fault as the writer, maybe that I didn't make that clear enough. Oh no, you did. At the end, you talk about um, finally cutting her off, but then also saying she'd been there for me through my death and infertility struggle. I think you did a good job of it. Mm-hmm. My character mm-hmm. is character. And in my opinion, uh, the fact that she encroached on your relationship with JT was like the nail in the coffin. Who knows what would have happened if you would have broken up with Will? You ended up marrying Will later. So later. who knows if, that, if you made the wrong decision? I mean, who? hindsight is twenty twenty. We don't know, know what would have happened. I know. And is that the grief that you have to deal with? Never knowing where this could have gone as a love story. That to me is what I took out of it. Like, you'll never know where this could have gone had you made a different decision, but you were so effing young. Yes. Young and inexperienced. Yeah. And in the book, I call it exploring without a map. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, I, I really was exploring with just breaking away from my family. And I, you may have a question or two to ask about this, yeah. but, you know, my family were fairly conservative. They weren't religious particularly, but they definitely were racist. And I, you know, I grew up watching civil rights struggles on television and I didn't want to be like that. And so when I went away to college, you know, that was a, a very freeing time for me. And also because of affirmative action, there were people of color on college campuses in larger numbers than had ever been there before. So I had opportunities to meet people from different backgrounds than mine. And I, I really enjoyed that because I, you know, my parents always said, oh, they're so different from us. They're so different from us. And I kind of wanted to find out for myself. And I found out, no, we're people and we all have the same struggles and hopes and fears. And, you know, my parents have kind of gone off the deep end on this and I'm not going with them. Well, in the end, that's what we as the reader why we love the narrator and I'm going to call her the narrator. Cause we, even though you wrote the book, every book, it's a character. <laughs> Linda as a young woman is very brave in that sense. I really admired her for that. Not only 
does she walk the walk and talk the talk, but she's teaching her little sister how to treat people. She's breaking free from the constraints of race and racism and, you know, miscegenation laws and all that misogyny, all of that is just this huge part of it. Right. And um, even though we're in the seventies, so we're past Jim Crow, we're past that. And we are in the midst of a lot of racial turmoil. So kind of right. And our song, it's not just a memoir of love. It's a memoir of love and race. And you're in a love triangle in the book as a white woman with a racist father, very racist father, um, enabling race, semi-racist mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and your grandfather also kind of throws you under the bus. Cut and mm-hmm. yeah, and, and you're navigating this as a young college girl, even though you might be middle class, you don't have a lot of resources, you don't have a lot of money. You don't have a lot of financial support. At one point, you have to start selling acid or whatever so that you can pay off the debt that you took to go visit Will, who's doing, a, you know, summer studying abroad, in studying mm-hmm. in England. And, you know, you're navigating this like you're always struggling, even though you're growing up middle class. Linda, as a character in college, is very blue collar in the sense that struggling financially the whole time right mm-hmm. so how hard also, was it? my parents didn't help me with a lot of things they they didn't advise me about how to pick a college for example or you know how to navigate just many of the things in life and I don't know no. why because it's not like they weren't educated but they weren't I don't know they just weren't exposed to doing that and so they didn't do it and it left me kind of floundering on my own and trying to figure things out Yeah. Yeah. And so in the book, the whole book, in my opinion, really does revolve around around race and racism and how to um, confront that. And that must have been hard to write as a white woman, I would imagine. Um, And I know you've talked about this in a recent Medium article people can look up. Like, where do you come out on this? Like, how hard is it to, to, to kind of navigate that really tricky you know, briar patch of issues, you know? So here's the choice I made. And I think I was already doing it in my book, but then I was confronted more, more specifically um, talking to a publicist who said, you know, the media does not want to hear white people writing about race. And I totally understood what she was talking about because, you know, there's a history of white people telling black people what their experience is. And, you know, I think you just can't do that. And so I wrote an article specifically about that subject and I posted it on Medium. So if someone searched my name on Medium, um, it's called, you know, can white people discuss and write about race? And my thoughts about it were, as long as I'm speaking from my own experience, it's not hate rhetoric. And if anything, I'm looking at my own prejudices. Mm and admitting to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and there were a couple of big ones in there that I confronted in my relationships and then wrote about in this medium article um, that I thought at the tender age of 1920, that I had no prejudices. Well, you know, (laughs) that's rock of shit. Of course I did. They're ingrained. You can't help. Yeah, I know. And so Mm -hmm. I tried to think through, okay, why am I reacting to these situations this way? And what, what, prejudice does that uh, illuminate for me to learn from and for others to learn from hopefully I think the reality is is white people can write about race as long as they're woke and you're pretty damn woke so um you I know that in the article too <laughs> yeah I mean that's what it's about I would never pretend to know what my black client that's incarcerated feels like but I think I do have a duty to help him tell his story or tell how I perceive his story and highlight that. I think it's really important because the minute that we say that we can't talk to these experiences, then what we're apathetic, we're not going to get involved in the right. struggle. I mean, it's right. everything, right? Um, Cindy has a comment. Mm. That's a well-researched summarization of Linda's book. Love this talk. Uh, well, Linda's book really is a quick read. It's a beautiful read. I mean, uh, Linda's one of the best writers I know, so I wasn't surprised. Let's talk about this really quick before we get into the Colleen issue. 
Um, how but, hard was the publication? Because I really want the writers here uh, to know that it wasn't yeah. easy and it never is easy. And the minute yeah. that you think it's going to be easy, it isn't. Like how hard was, so you wrote it, then uh, then you wanted well, I, to publish it. I wrote it and I wanted to publish it. And, you know, the typical thing that most writers want is to find an agent who's going to sell their book to one of the big publication houses. And that's just so hard to find and hard to yeah. get and, and more rare than people would think. Um, it's easy for people who are already famous or well-known or have bestsellers or, you know, whatever. But for the average person like me, just coming into it new, um, my chances are pretty slim. And so what pushed me along the path that I ended up going on was actually the pandemic, because I wanted my book to be published and I didn't want to die of COVID before that happened. And, you know, it's a little hard to picture nowadays, but back in the early days of COVID, it was not crazy to think that you might die from COVID. And people still do, but especially back when we didn't have the vaccinations and the treatments that we have now. So neither of these books would exist without COVID. I swear, I swear, I swear. And yeah. neither would yours. I don't think that you and I would have made it over that hump. We might still be working on them and thinking we need it to be, um, we need an agent or we need it to be perfect. Or so what I did was I went with what's called a hybrid publisher. Talk about and that. The one I chose is one that has a very good reputation uh, they don't take just anybody. You have to apply and they have to accept you. And even if they accept you, they might say on the condition that you need to have this extra training in, you know, making your book up to snuff. Um, and the way it works is that you pay them a fee to publish the book and then you earn royalties back as, you know, as the book sells. And it's a it's a faster track than that whole hunting for an agent thing. Yeah. And I also didn't want to go the self-publishing route because I'm not a very techie person. And I thought that could just take forever for me to learn the things that I need to learn to self-publish. So I went with a, a hybrid press called She Writes Press. They're Which is basically, I would say, the best hybrid press there is. I think arguably, yes. They are a company of all women and they publish only women. And their books win awards. Um, so that was good enough for me. And I went with them. It doesn't mean that the path was smooth because it wasn't. Yeah. And one of the things that they, in asked what me, way? Well, one of the things they asked me to do that I was, had not, you know, anticipated was they wanted me to have a legal, um, evaluation, an evaluation from an attorney who specializes in publishing law that could look at things like copyright infringement, invasion of privacy, uh, and those kinds of things. Um, mm. And actually, I, I was resistant at first because it meant spending extra money, you know, than what I'd already spent. But it was well worth it. I, I yeah. really appreciated what the attorney had to say. And I was able to make some, you know, not even that complex fixes um, to just keep the book more in line with, you know, what's legal to say about other mm. people. Uh, so, you know, there were there were certainly bumps in the road. In the beginning, I wasn't sure that I liked the title. I wasn't sure that I liked I the cover. The title. I love um, the cover. But other people do. And I it's grown on me, I have to say. Yeah. Um, and I think their point of view was we know the market better than you. And, you know, we recommend that you go with our suggestions. So I did. And I'm glad I did. Sorry, I was just looking at um, Francis says she doesn't have sound. If, if anyone is having a sound issue, I just checked it on my Facebook. I hear sound. So if it's an issue, you might have to log out, log back in, Francis. But I think that's really important for people to remember because I'm a lawyer. So it's a little easier, easier for me, even though I don't specialize in copyright, to kind of know these things instinctively. Um, but what I would say is when you're dealing with memoir and you're writing about non-family members because the family members you can kind of navigate that's something you can work with but when you're talking about a third party 
who is not a family member or let's say an estranged family member, then you're in a whole thorny situation. Sometimes you did change names. Talk about that. You changed names. You changed some identities. You changed some identifying information. You took out the letters. Like, how was that? You had to like, the lawyer told you or you decided you had to do it. Like, I, I think it's really illustrative because people think you write the book and then it just magically goes to yeah, print. Yeah, right. It's not like that. You know, the lawyer never told me what to do. He only made suggestions that he thought would be legally sound yeah. for, for me and for my book to get out there yeah. and hopefully, you know, not um, come back at me with, you know, something, some legal pursuit. Yeah. Um, so his suggestion was changing names of some of the characters and some I knew I should change, like, you know, the character of JT, I knew that he did not want to be identifiable in the book and a few others. And then there were a few friends that I asked, do you want me to change your name? And they said, no, you know, like one of them was my college roommate. And, you know, we got into some stuff when we were in college. Which one, Fran? Uh, Fran, sex, drugs, and rock and roll and all of that. And, you know, she was not ashamed to have the truth told about just what our college experience was. Well, um, that's so, a great example because she may not be a major character in the book, but I think some of your escapades are a major component and plot point of the book. Right. Um, so I think it's really important. You checked with her and she was comfortable with it. Yeah. You know? And there were a few like that. And then, uh, yeah. uh, and then the attorney also thought just, you know, any identifiable things about characters that might not be happy about the book. And so mm-hmm. that included locations of where they lived and where they went yeah. to school and, and things like that. And it, it wasn't easy. It was, it was part of the reason that, you know, it took me eight years to write this book, but to get it where I got it. But write the book. You can deal with the legalese and all that stuff later. The point yeah. is get it on paper, write it, and then you can do this. Okay, yes. so let's talk about this issue. I had a couple other questions. I'm going to skip over them. This is one of my most favorite parts of this book is that at the beginning, you see Linda reading these letters about her and JT and their relationship 40 years prior. And then I'm not going to give away what happens, mm-hmm. but JT and Linda meet up in their 60s when Linda's in the uh, East Coast for her high school college reunion kind of thing. Right. Right. And that's my favorite part because they're like older, kind of beaten down by life, not as sexy, maybe a little balding, a little punch, you know, you're still hot, hot, hot AF, but you know, you, you are not 20 anymore. Oh no. <laughs> so you're meeting up in your sixties. And for me in the end, that is what the story, what the climax was, was, this idea that you can rediscover this passion even in your 60s. And we're rooting for, for, for them to work it out, right? And yep. I just think that's such a beautiful idea that no matter what your age is, you can find love or rekindle old love. And I have to say, I think Tracy, my bestie, might be watching. My best friend Tracy got a divorce and ended up marrying later, meeting up with her elementary school crush and best friend john and they're married now wow yeah it happened exciting story tracy write your story girl right i mean it's beautiful yeah they're our best friends i never knew john he lived in our area but i never knew him in high school but him and tracy were besties in like elementary and junior high and they rekindled when they're both in their 40s you know and, and they got married so it can happen it can happen. And, you know, <laughs> the way it came about that JT and I um, came back together was that we'd always stayed in touch, loosely in touch, mm-hmm. you know, always had an email once there were emails, have always had a cell phone once there were cell phones, we'd write occasionally, call occasionally. Um, but the whole thing about that fire and how I could have lost the letters got me thinking, um, you know, we're not young. And I've already had friends pass away. Yeah. Um, death can take you at any time. Yep. And did I want that man to just disappear off the earth and I never get to say goodbye mm. or anything? And so I wrote to him and said, you know, I'm going to be on the East Coast. And how do you feel about meeting up? And, and he was all for it. And so we did. 
and you're like dressed up, sexy, meet up with him at a bar. You're sitting like Joey Roberts style at the bar when he walks in. Uh huh. Sexy. Yeah. yeah. Let's say that's hot. But and then I, uh, you know, I I had gotten a room at the hotel because by the time I flew and arrived and everything, you know, it's evening, and so I'd gotten a room, and I thought, hmm, I wonder what's in his mind. You know, when did you shave your legs? Uh. I probably, oh no, I got waxed before I went. <laughs> so same difference. Um, but, you know, I fixed my hair, a little makeup and everything. And I thought, gee, when dinner's over, is he going to just say goodnight and leave? And instead he said, did you bring your computer? And I said, sure. And he said, well, why don't we go listen to some music? And we went up to the room and he started looking on YouTube for our old songs. And playing them. And it was just unbelievable because I found out things that I had wondered for 40 years. He loved you just as much as you loved him. Yes. So you were not in any way exaggerating the import of this relationship. It basically followed you both throughout your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's a realistic love story. Love stories don't always turn out perfect. You know, I've been with my husband for at this point, 30 years. It hasn't always been easy. And I I do not believe in this idea that we're raised with that love is just romance. I've written a poem about love being the day-to-day ordinary rote routine. It's the humdrum is what bliss is, right? The love is the humdrum. The love is you and JT meeting up in your sixties in a hotel room, watching YouTube and playing your favorite music together, because no matter what, no one can take that away from you, that that moment actually happened. Absolutely not. Oh, Francis says it's beautiful, but it breaks your heart. Very true. (laughs) No, but, and the most beautiful stories, love stories are always tinged with sadness. Um, Linda and I were talking in the green room about one of my favorite books, as a love story, not as a historical story. Gone with the Wind at the end, Rat and Scarlet do not end up together. Right? It's a tragedy. Romeo and Juliet, it's a tragedy. Um, so I think that's important to realize um, that these realistic love stories are beautiful because they're true. So don't cry. <laughs> No, no, but I, you know, I do feel the the sadness there that even though the book is a love story and it's very beautifully written and there's all this joy and happiness, there is an undercurrent of grief. There is. It's it's in some ways a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that you, you'll never know what could have happened. But in the end, I think um, you have a great effing life, right? Yes, I do. <laughs> Not wrote this I am grateful for what I have. Yeah. And I'm grateful that you put this book out there in the universe that I can actually hold this in my hands. I'm so proud of you. Um, and Frances is going to be next to publish and I, her book and I know it. So as Ruthie said, some of the best love stories of all time are the saddest, the awakening lady Chatterley's mm-hmm. lover, Anna Karina, which is one of my favorite. Um, the Russian tragedy. Um, <laughs> Ruthie, spoiler alert, they all died. <laughs> you get to tell your story. <laughs> well, JT and I are both still alive. So Yes, yes. And you're thriving. So is he, I hope. Let's wish him well. And, you know, kudos to, for him to put his position forward, um, tow his line, what he was comfortable with. And you as the writer had to deal with that and adapt. I know. Yeah. So not agree to any any kind of um, working together on the book. Yeah. So we're going to talk about how people can find you, what's next on the horizon. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to do happy holidays, toast and resolutions. And then we're going to have you read really quick again. But I want to say this. Um, the other theme, and I love to find themes in books because I always do a close read. I read every book two to three times. I've actually probably read this book like 50 times. Um, <laughs> it's a record because we're in our writing group for uh, some of these stories. Oh, I've seen chapters over and over again. Yeah, over, over and over again. Um, yeah. uh, we'd read a different story every uh, every month. So. 
But with that, I think one of the themes I saw was you as a young girl finding your voice both as a student, as a woman, as a teacher. Like there's a lot of that in here where Linda is standing up to these idiot male professor academics that are chastising her or not giving her her due in your rhetoric class. And the thing I like about the character of Linda in it, the narrator, is that she knows she's smart. And she's like, this rhetoric professor is the stupid one, right? (laughs) Yeah, and I have to say this. um, You know, when I had that professor, he just demolished my confidence. Mm -hmm. And I didn't write again for quite a while. And then after college, um, I started getting a couple of publications, but then I also got some of those heartbreaking rejections. And again, I just shut down and, and didn't write. And I went through, you know, a good portion of my life, hardly doing any writing, you know, different reasons. Confidence was one, but also the need to earn a living, you know, and, and forge some kind of a career and so on. Um, So it was really scary coming back to it because I realized had I been writing this whole time, I would be a much better writer than I am having just stopped the way I did or nearly stopped. Yeah. So I was worried coming back. <clears throat> I knew I had things to say, but can I find the language to say them? I just wasn't sure. Mm. And You know, there was hit or miss. I mean, I still get rejections. Um, but I also get acceptances. And, you know, one that excited me recently was something called my a tiny love story that was published in the New York Times. It was and awesome. Just out of the blue, I can say I'm published in the New York Times. Never would have thought so. So, you know, even if you've been away from writing for some time or you just think you can't anymore, you know, try to find ways to banish those ideas from your head and do as much writing as you can. They always say write every day and that's the ideal, but it isn't always realistic. But doing what you can to try to make your art. And if it isn't writing, then maybe it's some other art. Maybe it's, maybe it's, you know, visual art. Maybe it's. I I just put a a link. If people want to check out your New York times, tiny love story called (laughs) I want a divorce. It's masterful. If you, I mean, it's like one of the shortest stories I've ever read, and it packs so much punch. And it's hundred words. So That's what those have to be. A mm-hmm. hundred words. So An- another love reference, though, right? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Relationships are are my subject, and memoir is my genre. And you also had a story in yeah. the uh, Los Angeles Times. I That's did. a cowboy love story. That's sexy too. Kinda dude ranch. Dude ranch. Yeah. So let's find that one. Tell people where they can find you. And people, the next thing we're going to do before Linda reads is put our New Year's resolutions and do a toast. So anyone that wants to put your New Year's resolutions in the chat, please do. And I'll read them out. Um, And like I said, you should look up all of Linda's works on her website. But tell people where to find you and what's next on the horizon. Okay, so uh, I have a website, lindasmithhogan.com, and it's Linda with a Y and Hogan with two Gs, and the Smith in the middle is just the regular Smith. Um, And on my website, uh, you can find a blog that I write with a number of entries about many topics, but, you know, some of them are about sexuality because that's a field of mine and a fun thing that I like to write about. Um, You can also see... Uh, you can also buy my book on from directly from the website. And there's another book that I've advertised there, too, called Art in the Time of Unbearable Crisis. And it's um, writings by women about the things that have been going on in the last few years that have really put our world in crisis. And it um, it is a uh, what all proceeds go to charity and you know, I, I have an essay in there. So I'm advertising awesome. that on my website too. And then other samples of the things that I've published are on there. A way to contact me is there. Um, so take a look and, you know, feel free to, to comment or get in touch or whatever. And if you would like to be added to my newsletter list, you can send me a message through the website with your email and I will put you on the newsletter list. 
Um, I have that article on Medium, you know, that that anybody can find. Uh, I also have a Facebook author page um, that you can look for. And as far as what's on the horizon, well, I really want to keep um, trying to promote this book because, yeah. again, being kind of a small time writer, you know, I'm not going to have hordes of fans just out of the blue. I have to go looking for people who might be interested. And um, that's something that I plan to work on in the new year. And then I think I... Is that your resolution? Well, um, that's one. And the other is basically I've already started writing my second book. Yeah. (laughs) Yay. So let's cheers to you, to love to your new year's resolution. My is to get my uh, new year's resolution is to get my books to film or TV screen. So cheers. cheers. Happy new year, everyone. <laughs> and, and Bruce is here who says it's nearly impossible to overestimate. And he's a good friend of Linda's. And I know Bruce, how much time, effort and emotional turbulence went into producing this artfully written book. Congratulations, Aww. Linda. Thank cheers you, to Bruce. you, Bruce. Cheers to everybody who's listening. Thanks for tuning in. I'm really sad you left SoCal because we can't ever do karaoke together. So you're going to come visit me and we'll do it. I, that would be really fun. <laughs> yeah, oh, we got a, a cheers from Ruthie. So I just want to, uh, before we're going to have Linda read us out. So um, Linda's going to end the podcast. She'll end with the reading and then we'll cut off. So I just want to say thank you everyone for coming to our last podcast of the year. Um, and it, Buy this book, Our Song, A Memoir of Love and Race. Go to Linda Smith Hogan's website. Um, We have two more resolutions. Frances Borella said, my resolution is to get my book published. Yes. Yay. Oh, yes. And it's going to happen. And Cindy said, write my first book, Cheers. And Cindy has written a book about, uh, a children's book about a mouse at the Mission Inn that's just beautiful. Oh, yeah. As well. Um, I want to tell everyone that I'm going to take a one month hiatus. I'll be back on January 18th. Gloria Estella Gonzalez, author of the book, Eribada, is coming on January 18th. I'm fully booked through June. I'm going to start scheduling anyone that wants to come on um, in season. I think it'll be four at that point um, in a couple months. So if anyone wants to come on, just send me an email. I'll put you on the list. And uh, I, I try to get everyone on. It's just right now. It's a little packed. And I'm really glad I was able to fit Linda in. Thank you for coming on, Linda. So how about you read us out? Let's give everyone a cheers and some love for the new yeah. year. 2023 is going to rock. Read us out, Linda. Love you, girl. Okay. So where I left off actually was me and my girlfriends leaving JT's dorm room after he invited me to come back the next night. So the next night I returned with rum and coke. JT rolled a joint and put on a stack of records, and we began our communicative dance just sitting on his dorm bed. Politics, Tricky Dick, the Vietnam War, then our shared passion for music. Rum in my arteries, THC in my veins, oxytocin and dopamine bathing my brain. JT pulled me closer. Was it a dream or was his essence now coursing through me too? His words, his smell, his smile, all tinctures blending with mine. Those eyes flickering like firelight, his lips on me, lips coming back to kiss me, kiss me. Deep murmurs and soft tinkling bells of laughter. Mmm sounds and breathing. Sweating in January, my top coming off. Jeans unbuttoned and unzipped, everything off. Skin to skin, his strong arms under me my long legs wrapped around his narrow hips. Isaac Hayes, low rumble, repeating, your love so doggone good. Hips grinding, wet on wet, and then the rumble was inside us. I love you, someone whispered. Afterward, as we lay there recovering and I was trying to take it all in, the room began to turn like a merry-go-round. It went faster and faster until I jumped off, lurching out his door and down the hall, the men's bathroom to throw up in the toilet. JT followed. Do you need help? He asked from outside the stall. No, don't come in. A girlfriend could hold my hair, but I didn't want JT to see me that way. He stood watch at the door and then led me shaking back to his room. I'm sorry. I'm so embarrassed. I apologized. I shouldn't mix pot and liquor. I get the spins. 
It's okay, I understand, he said, and held me, stroking my face and hair until I was well enough to get up. Dawn was about to break and it was time for me to go. My parents did not take kindly to my staying out all night. All right, JT said. Me too, I answered. As my internal fog lifted and as if I wasn't already ashamed enough, I realized that it had been my voice whispering that I loved him. I paused at the door. Back there when I said I love you, mm-hmm. What I meant was that I love what I see of you so far. Shh, I know. JT placed one finger on my mouth, then leaned over and kissed my sour lips as if they were still sweet. Don't worry, he said, and his smile was more brilliant than the sun that lit his hair like a halo as it came streaming through the window. That's how it started, the love affair that would turn my life upside down. It would take me many years to understand how the young me was a paradox, smart but dumb, passionate yet blasé. I was an explorer trying to find my way, and I didn't have a map. Wow. Mm, so bittersweet. <laughs> so... We're going to end now, but uh, by this bittersweet tale of love, our song by Linda Smith Hogan. Thank you, Linda. I Thank so you, you. to everybody who came. Happy 2023. I hope it's a good one for you. Happy New Year, everybody. <laughs> okay. Love you, girl. Love you, everyone. Thanks for watching. We had a good viewership tonight. Hope everyone has a great new year and we will see you in 2023. And Linda, when your next book comes out, I got to book you. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. And Francis, come on. Let's get this book published. You got to go. Okay. Bye, you guys. Say bye, everyone. Bye. Good night.